Section 11 of English Costume. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. English Costume by Dion Clayton Calthrop. Section 11. Edward II. Reigned 20 years, 1307 to 1327. Born 1284. Married 1308. Isabella of France. Men and Women. Whether the changes in costume that took place in this reign were due to enterprising tailors, or to an exceptionally hot summer, or to the fancy of the king, or to the sprightliness of Piers Gaveston, it is not possible to say. Each theory is arguable, and, no doubt, in some measure each theory is right, for, although men followed the new mode, ladies adhered to their earlier fashion. Take the enterprising tailor. Call him an artist. The old loose robe was easy of cut. It afforded no outlet for his craft. It cut into a lot of material, was easily made at home. It was, in fact, a baggy affair that fitted nowhere. Now, is it not possible that some tailor artist, working upon the vanity of a lordling who was proud of his figure, showed how he could present this figure to its best advantage in a body-tight garment which should reach only to his hips. Take the hot summer. You may or may not know that a hot summer some years ago suddenly transformed the city of London from a place of top hats and black coats into a place of flannel jackets and hats of straw, so that it is now possible for a man to arrive at his city office clad according to the thermometer, without incurring the severe displeasure of the fathers of the city. It seems that somewhere midway between 1307 and 1327 men suddenly dropped their long robes, loosely tied at the waist, and appeared in what looked uncommonly like vests, and went by the name of Cotahardis. It must have been surprising to men who remembered England clothed in long and decorous robes, to see in their stead these gay, debonair, tight vests of pied cloth, or party-coloured silk. Piers Gaveston, the gay, the graceless but graceful favourite, clever at the tournament, warlike and vain, may have instituted this complete revolution in clothes, with the aid of the weak king. Sufficient, perhaps, to say that, although long robes continued to be worn, Cotahardis were all the fashion. There was a general tendency to exaggeration. The hood was attacked by the dandies, and, instead of its modest peak, they caused to be added a long pipe of the material, which they called a lyra-pipe. Every quaint thought and invention for tying up this lyra-pipe was used. They wound it about their heads, and tucked the end into a coil. They put it about their necks, and left the end dangling. They rolled it on to the top of their heads. The countryman, not behindhand in quaint ideas, copied the form of a bishop's hood, and appeared with his cloth hood divided into two peaks, one on either side of his head. This new cotahardi was cut in several ways. Strictly speaking, it was a cloth or silk vest, tight to the body and close over the hips. The length was determined by the fancy of the wearer. 
It also had influence on the long robes still worn, which, although full below the waist to the feet, now more closely fitted the body and shoulders. The fashionable sleeves were tight to the elbow, and from there hanging and narrow, showing a sleeve belonging to an undergarment. The cloak also varied in shape. The heavy travelling cloak, with the hood attached, was of the old pattern, long, shapeless, with or without hanging sleeves, loose at the neck, or tightly buttoned. Then there was a hooded cloak, with short sleeves, or with the sleeves cut right away, a sort of hooded surcoat. Then there were two distinct forms of cape, one a plain circular cape, not very deep, which had a plain, round, narrow collar of fur or cloth, and two or three buttons at the neck, and there was the round cape, without a collar, but with turned-back lapels of fur. This form of cape is often to be seen. The boots and shoes were longer at the toes, and were sometimes buttoned at the sides. The same form of hats remain, but these were now treated with fur brims. Round the waist there was always a belt, generally of plain black leather. From it depended a triangular pouch, through which a dagger was sometimes stuck. The time of party-coloured clothes was just beginning, and the cotehardie was often made from two coloured materials, dividing the body in two parts by the colour difference. It was the commencement of the age which ran its course during the next reign, when men were striped diagonally, vertically, and in angular bars, when one leg was blue and the other red. You will note that all work was improving in this reign, when you hear that the king paid the wife of John de Bureford one hundred marks for an embroidered cope, and that a great green hanging was procured for King's Hall, London, for solemn feasts, a hanging of wool, worked with figures of kings and beasts. The ladies made little practical change in their dress, except to wear an excess of clothes, against the lack of draperies indulged in by the men. It is possible to see three garments, or portions of them, in many dresses. First there was a stuff gown, with tight sleeves buttoned to the elbow from the wrist. This sometimes showed one or two buttons under the gorget in front, and was fitted, but not tightly, to the figure. It fell in pleated folds to the feet, and had a long train. This was worn alone, we may suppose, in summer. Second, there was a gown to go over this other, which had short, wide sleeves, and was full in the skirts. One or other of these gowns had a train, but if the upper gown had a train, the under one had not, and vice versa. Third, there was a surcoat, like to a man's, not over long or full, with the sleeve-holes cut out wide. This went over both, or either, of the other gowns. Upon the head they wore the wimple, the fillet, and about the throat the gorget. The arrangement of the wimple and fillet were new, for the hair was now plaited in two tails, and these brought down straight on either side of the face. The fillet was bound over the wimple in order to show the plate, and the gorget met the wimple behind the plate, instead of over it. The older fashion of hair-dressing remained, and the gorget was pinned to the wads of hair over the ears, without the covering of the wimple. 
Sometimes the fillet was very wide, and placed low on the head over a wimple tied like a gorget. In this way the two side plates showed only in front, and appeared covered at side face, while the wimple and broad fillet hid all the top hair of the head. Very rarely a tall, steeple headdress was worn over the wimple, with a hanging veil, but this was not common, and indeed it is not a mark of the time, but belongs more properly to a later date. However, I have seen such a headdress drawn at or about this time, so must include it. The semicircular mantle was still in use, held over the breast by means of a silk cord. It may seem that I describe these garments in too simple a way, and the rigid antiquarian would have made comment on courtepies, on gamboised garments, on cloth of gaunt, or cloth of dunster. I may tell you that a gambeson was the quilted tunic worn under armour, and for the sake of those whose tastes run into the arid fields of such research, that you may call it wambasium, gobeson, wambies, gambies, gobeson, or half a dozen other names, but to my mind you will get no further with such knowledge. Falding is an Irish frieze, cyclus is a gown, cortope is a short gown, kirtle, again if we know too much we cannot be accurate, kirtle may be a loose gown, or an apron, or a jacket, or a riding cloak. The tabard was an embroidered surcoat, that is, a surcoat on which was displayed the heraldic device of the owner. Let us close this reign with its mournful end, when Piers Gaveston feels the teeth of the black dog of Warwick, and is beheaded on Blacklow Hill. When Hugh le Dispenser is hanged on a gibbet, when the Queen lands at Orwell, conspiring against her husband, and the King is a prisoner at Kenilworth. Here at Kenilworth the king hears himself deposed. Edward, once king of England, is hereafter accounted a private person, without any manner of royal dignity. Here Edward, in a plain black gown, sees the steward of his household, Sir Thomas Blunt, break his staff of office, done only when a king is dead, and discharge all persons engaged in the royal service. Parliament decided to take this strong measure in January. In the following September, Edward was murdered in cold blood at Berkeley Castle. End of section 11. Read by Kara Schallenberg in July 2010 in San Diego, California.